So this morning we're going to continue. Last week we were in 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy uh, as he was in Ephesus and leading the church there. And so we're picking up in chapter 2 this morning, and I'm going to read you the passage, and then I'm going to skip over to chapter 3 just for a second and read an explanation of why Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. And so hopefully that will bring a, a bit of clarity to us. So I invite you to listen carefully and listen well, for this too is the word of the Lord from 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. And now Paul's reason for why he wrote all of this. Chapter 3, verse 14, he says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So why did he write it? In case he didn't get to visit him as soon as he wanted, so that Timothy, as he's leading this church in Ephesus, would know how to instruct the church in how they ought to behave as the household of God. Another way of saying is as God's family. Uh, The church of the living God, which is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So I I, I kind of, I'm looking around and it seems to me that we're gathered together as the household of God this morning, church of the living God, and maybe this would be helpful for us. Maybe Paul wrote this not just to Timothy, but to you and to me and to us to come to understand in a deeper way how we're to behave as the household of God, what it looks like to be God's family. So we're going to get a little bit of that this morning. And where does he start? First of all, then, he says, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. He starts with prayer, doesn't he? That we should pray. When we come together, if we're to be God's family, if we're going to be God's household together, that means we're not just thinking about ourselves. It means that immediately we're to be praying for everyone. So when we come together, we're actually doing something in service to the world. When you come together, pray for all people. Also, including kings and persons in high authority. I don't know if anybody's been watching the news in the last couple weeks, right? I mean, there's been some things going on with kings and queens and so on, transitions being made, um, lots of ceremony, lots of prayers being offered, right? Um, Anybody watching that? 
Can, the, yeah, yeah, stuff going on across the Atlantic. Um, there's a charge here in the scripture that we would pray for kings with persons who are in high authority. Uh, England is doing that. Now, you may remember that America sort of got its start by saying we don't want to have a king. <laughs> and yet, here's this commandment in the scripture to pray for kings. Uh, I think you'll notice something interesting. So, you know, we have in our form of government, a legislative, an executive, and a judicial branch. England has those, those things as well in their own form, but, but they also have what you might call a symbolic branch of government, right? So, so, so the, the, the royal family, in its own way, doesn't, doesn't really have you know, all that much power per se, but what they do have is, is something that I think they take as some measure of responsibility to embody or to represent the spirit of the people, to sort of gather up the national identity in a symbolic way. And so you can see that this week, in the last couple of weeks, how everyone in the country is sort of looking and, and pointing to, I, at this point, I guess, where the queen's coffin lays at the center of the church and everyone's gathered around it, right? You've seen these pictures of the vigil. And so in, so, in some symbolic sense, everyone is looking to this point in the church as, as the queen is being prayed for. So that's gathered up the whole national consciousness and identity. So you can see how the symbolic weight is placed upon the monarch. Now, we don't have a monarchy. Right? We, we have a judicial, legislative, and executive branch. But guess what? People always want to have a king or a queen. Even when... America's rejected that. In some way, we want somebody, forget the word king or queen, we want somebody who will gather up and hold for us an identity that we can look at and say, oh yes, that's who we are. Right? So we don't have a symbolic branch of the government for that, so guess who we dump all of that weight upon? The president. Yeah? So the president becomes not only this executive office and leader, but also bears the symbolic weight of having to represent in some way our national being and self. Now, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but in like the last 10 years, or maybe, maybe it's always been this way, but things seem to be a little more contentious of late. <laughs> and some people like the person who now bears a, a representative symbolic role as president. Some don't. Some like the last guy, and we're really glad about how this person represented the symbolic identity of our, of our country, and others didn't. I also heard some folks say that, that they weren't very inclined to pray for the president. I won't say which one. But you know, that's sort of a dangerous spot to be in because it completely contradicts and goes a against the clear command of what Scripture calls us to do. Pray for the king and for people in positions of high authority. We don't have a king. we got a president. We have, we have leaders. You are called to pray for them, especially when they're the ones that you don't like. Now, if you think that's hard, which it is, I get it, 
I want you to think just for a second about the context in which Paul wrote this. Early Christians were in the Roman Empire. They had a Roman emperor who wasn't too inclined to look very nicely upon Christians. They went through a succession of times following Paul where the emperor was killing Christians, persecuting them, taking them and throwing them into the arena with lions and bears and tigers. Oh my, right? Having them put to death, crucifying them upright and upside down and sideways. The church was reading this letter as it was circulated among the congregations, and they had to pray for the king, for the persons in high authority, for the Roman emperor who was more inclined to have them killed than to let them gather on Sunday to pray for him. So basically, the scripture says, no matter how hard it gets, you are called to pray for the people who are in positions of authority over you. So we came to church and heard something challenging this morning, right? We're to pray for all people. That's what we do when we come together. That's what it looks like to be the household of God. We're to pray for the president, like him or not. That's our role. That's our task. Why? Well, before I get to why, I want to, I want to show you. If you think that's hard to do, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you just a sigh of relief, maybe. You know, when we come together as the household of God, we, we want to do that in a way that's obedient to what the Scriptures call us to. Um, if you've been praying the prayers of the people for very long, guess what? You've been praying for persons in authority and all people. It's just, it is baked in to our worship. So we'll do this in a little bit, but I want you then to pay attention to a couple of them. Here are a couple of the petitions. Uh, this liturgy, this litany of prayers, actually, that we pray, came from before the 4th century. Uh, so it's during that time when, before Rome converted, during the time when the emperors might be persecuting Christians. And it's been abridged just a little bit, or changed because of our praying this in the United States. But here's, here's the petition for our president. doesn't say which party, it just says whichever one. For our president, for the leaders of the nations, and for all in authority. Let us pray to the Lord, and we say, Lord, have mercy. The very next one, for this town of Newland and county of Avery, for every city and community and all who live within them, let us pray to the Lord, and we pray, Lord, have mercy. So if you want to begin to do this, just come to church. It's, it's there for you. All you have to do is respond, Lord, have mercy, and you're praying for those in high authority. You're praying for all people everywhere and everywhere they live. But, but let's get to the why, um, or, or what exactly we ought to be praying for. For what, what purpose is behind this? Paul gives four things. He says, pray for all people, pray for positions in high authority, so that we may live a peaceful, that's the first one, and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. A peaceful, quiet life, godly and dignified every way. Uh, the title of the sermon was Peace and Quiet. And as a, as a uh, dad who has kids that still got up in the middle of the night, Peace and Quiet sounds really nice. So 
Maybe that was a self-serving sermon title. Uh, But we're talking about something more than that kind of peace and quiet. When we talk about peace, you can look at the world right now and see places where there is no peace. There's the opposite of peace. There's war. You can see how difficult that is and how much suffering is involved. And it's like daily it seems like there's there's some new uh, tragedy that has come to light. We're not just talking about the peace of the world, although that's part of it. Um, We're not just talking about the peace of a community or the household of God, though that's part of it. Where this kind of boils down is uh, John John Chrysostom, 4th century, says that where this really comes, the place where this really comes to reside is in a person's heart. We're praying for a kind of peace within ourselves. Because it is possible for there to be peace in the world and peace in your community and peace in the church and yet you're still at war with yourself. Paul talks about it as as the spirit and the flesh being at war with one another. Your spirit wants to follow Christ, but the flesh is weak and pulls you in different ways and so you lean into anger or envy or any other manner of of sin. Your your flesh pulls you. The, the, The sinful and fallen part of you is one way to understand that word flesh in the scripture. And and your spirit wants to follow Christ, wants the higher things, wants to live in peace. And so eventually this is a peace that must begin with you because even if the world's at war, you can still have peace in your heart. Regardless of what the circumstances are externally to you, you can still have peace with God. This word peace, irene in Greek, shalom in Hebrew, begins to speak to the all-encompassing nature of this peace as it's presented to us in Scripture. So shalom is a word that means peace, yes, but it has this um, idea. It's it's, it's a a psychological kind of peace. Um, It's an emotional kind of peace. It's a relational kind of peace. But it also works its way into, like, the economic sphere, the political sphere, the relationships people have in community. Um, It touches in every aspect of life, a total and comprehensive peace. It's really the peace of God's kingdom where everything is lived out in accordance with God's will. We pray for all people and for our leaders that we might have a kind of life that knows this sort of peace. Do we not all have some longing for that in our lives? Peace and quiet. Uh, Again, this word is not just the kind of quiet that you know, uh, kids crying in the background seems to remove. But this is the kind of peace, um, the, the word here is hesekia. It's a word that means quiet or silence that comes to designate an entire uh, approach to the, the Christian life. Paul calls us athletes in the scripture. You're called to be a spiritual athlete. And one way in which that is lived out is through this practice of silence and quiet. Uh, the monastic tradition is called the Hesychist tradition, the quiet tradition. Uh, Jesus instructs us that when we pray, we're to go into a closet and close the door so that we can pray to our Father in secret. We can have no distraction there. And it says, when you pray to the Father in secret, He will reward you in secret as well. The tradition came to understand this to mean not just a literal closet, so that can be helpful, but also to mean 
uh, to close the doors of your life. In a sense, the doors to your body, which are your senses. Hearing and smell and taste and uh, sight and so on. To come to a place of silence where you begin little by little to close off all these distractions. The world that comes at you. Close those things off so that you might commune with God in your heart. Your heart is that closet where Christ resides and where you can meet with Him. And so you have these, these two aspects, peace and quiet, which lead to godliness. That is the third component. Godliness. You know, the church says that uh, we were created in God's image. Our, our prayer, our opening prayer of the day uh, reminded us of that. We're creating God's uh, image and likeness. And when we experience the fall, we maintain the image, but we lost the likeness. Meaning you bear the image of God, but you don't always look like God in the things that you do or say or love or desire. But when you practice a peaceful life and a quiet life, communing with God in your heart, you begin to look more and more like Christ. You begin to be able to do things that look like Him, like pray for all people. Remember that at the beginning? Pray for all people, even the leaders. Because later in the same passage, Paul says that God desires that all people should be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. You can become like God. In fact, this was the summary of the faith in the early days, that God has become human like you in Christ, so that by His grace and by His life, you might become godly like Him. So that you become by grace what Christ is by nature. So that in every way, your desires, your loves, your actions, your thoughts are a, a likeness, an exact imprint of Jesus. This leads to a restoration of the dignity of the, of the human person. That's the fourth petition, that we would live a dignified life in every way. When you become godly in your person, that image and likeness of God is restored to dignity in yourself, and it allows you to look at other people and see the dignity that God has bestowed upon them. It changes how you see other people. Now, in the church, surely, you know, we're also a bunch of sinners gathered this morning, and this is, you know, the hospital for sinners, not this uh, museum for saints. Um, we're a place, we're all sick, right? And we have come here that we might, in part, by God's word and our worship of him, have our hearts healed and turned little by little uh, till they look more like Jesus. So, of course, we're going to step on each other's toes. We're going to do things that that aren't nice, that are not respectful, that are hurtful or harmful at different points in time. And yet, there's a possibility for reconciliation here that is not true in other places. In fact, that's the call to which we've, uh, we're led. And it happens like this. When we come to the very center of this text this morning, when we learn that God desires for all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, we're then told what that truth is. That there is one God and that there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. And this word for men is one that means men and women together. It's humanity. But it's focused in this way so that you can see how Jesus is the precise answer to that issue. The reconciliation between God and and men is the man, Jesus Christ. He is the one mediator. Now, 
I want you to think about this word mediator for just a moment. A mediator is someone who goes between, right? But who also has equal weight and representation on either side. Um, I'm going to pick on Lois because Lois and Glenn brought some of the flowers today, and we appreciate that. Uh, and Lois's home is not too far away. And um, so let's just imagine for a minute that uh, when I decided to take my trash out and dispose of it during the week, I just decided to start dumping that right on Lois's front door. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that's hard for you to imagine me doing, but uh, I, maybe it's not. I don't know. <laughs> but let's just say that I started doing that, and Lois got fed up with this. And so Lois, every time that garbage showed up on her sidewalk, you know, in, the, in between the beautiful flowers that are there, she decided that she would just walk over to the church and key my car. Right? And so we get in this, you know, trash and keying the car battle and dispute. Well, we need mediation, clearly. <laughs> and let's say, um, as, as, a, as a mediator, Lois suggested Glenn. Now, I love Glenn, and I'm sure Glenn would be very good at this job, but don't you think Glenn is just a little bit closer to Lois than to me? So you're not really sure if Glenn would be able to, to equally work out this dispute that we've got with the trash and the keying of cars. We need somebody who sort of has equal weight in relationship between us. So we say that there's one God, and there's one mediator between God and and humanity, and that is the human being, the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is uniquely suited to this work as mediator because he is at the one, on the one hand, God, the eternal Son of the Father, the Logos, the, the, the reason, the ground of everything, the, representing the, the mind or the thought of God the Father. But he is also fully human. And so Jesus can ensure in his person, in his particular being, that God's promises to us are carried out of forgiveness. And Jesus can, in his own person, ensure that the other side of the covenant, from our human aspect, from our human side, of faithfulness and obedience and love and, tra and our transformation back into who we were created to be, is carried out from our human side. He's the, he's the one who can do this, this one mediator between God and man. So Jesus is our mediator between God and us, but also one another. So you will never encounter another person in the church, in the household of God, without Christ standing between you. You'll never engage in a dispute. You'll never engage in an act of love or service without Christ between you and within both of you. He is our mediator. You see how this becomes a mystical kind of uh, reconciliation that takes place. Now, if you think of the four things that we're called to pray for, peace and quiet and godliness and dignity, Jesus as the mediator is the one who brings all of this to us. Peace. The first thing he spoke to the apostles in the upper room after he had died and been raised again and appears to them there, peace be unto you. My peace I give to you. Reconciliation has been accomplished. Quiet. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, 
I and my Father will come and we will make our home in you, in your heart. Who, who's going to live in your heart? Christ Jesus will live there. So when you go into that quiet place, who do you meet? Your mediator, the, one who, the, the lover of your soul. Who is the one who makes you godly? What does godliness mean anyway? Who do you become like? Not God in abstraction, but God as he has, has come to us in a human being. You become like Jesus when you become godly. And that image in Jesus is restored to dignity so that the likeness is possible in us. Jesus is, is the key to the whole thing. And that, in fact, is what Paul says is the testimony, the witness given at the proper time. As you begin to look more and more like him, which is a long process, and God is patient, but as you look more and more like him, you are able with your words and with your very life to proclaim Jesus Christ as the one who reconciles. Jesus Christ as the Savior of all. But here's the catch. You do not just have to do that on your own. The focus of this passage is not how you become, in your individual person, the one who gives that testimony. Remember, this is given so that we might know how to behave in the household of God. When people come here, they are to encounter peace and stillness and godliness so that they can know their own dignity in the way that God loves them and wants to save them too. That is the testimony that we are called to give together. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.